Welcome to another very special episode of Vanilla Weiss and the Nostalgic Nerds. With us today, we have one returning guest along with a new very special guest with us returning for another episode is my good college buddy for music composer, Coley Dooley. Thank you for joining us again, Coley. <laughs> With us, we have a new get very special guest. He's a professional craftsmaker, runs his own Are You Afraid of the Dark memorabilia page, which goes by the name Sardo's Magic Mansion. Please welcome Brian um, Chamberlain's your last name, right? Correct. Uh, Please. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. So, um, I take um, did I take it you grew up with Are You Afraid of the Dark? You're a early millennial, like Coley and I. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure where the millennial and Gen Z and whatever the other ones are called. But uh, I was born in 85, so yeah, I was a kid in the 90s. Um, and I grew up with Are You Afraid of the Dark occasionally because as a kid in the 90s, we didn't always have cable TV. So when we had it, I was watching. When we didn't have it, I was not watching. But yeah, um, you were almost the exact same age. I was born at the ver at the end of 84. I was born in November of 1984. Um, yeah. Um. What? What? At what age would you say you really became a fan of the show? Um. I'm not sure how old I was, but I know the first time I saw it, I loved it. Um. And I watched Tales from the Crypt back then as well, which wasn't so much for kids, but anything scary or anything comedy. I watched a lot of Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I couldn't get enough. Are you afraid of the dark? And goosebumps as well, I guess. I agree. Um, what I loved about Are You Afraid of the Dark is that a lot of episodes, aside from just being visually scary, they really made you think too. Like some of them were more psychologically scary than they were visually scary. Um, yeah, for sure. Including the first episode, I remember the first episode I ever watched when I was like eight. Um, I think the first one I ever watched was The Captured Souls, and that was a prime example of one that was more psychologically scary than it was visually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, uh, the tale of Station 109.1 was terrifying to me because there wasn't like a, a monster, it was just death. And it was a kid, you know, who didn't know what he was doing. And he wound up at this radio station. They slapped a little bracelet on him and told him he was going to die soon. So that was kind of scary as a child to uh, take in. Yeah, and a great, I agree that that was a great concept and that overall it was a great episode. But one thing that I personally would have to critique, and mind you, as a comedian, I absolutely loved Gilbert Gottfried as a comedian, but to me, he felt very out of place in Are You Afraid of the Dark? I couldn't take him seriously as, like, a scary ghost. Mm -hmm. 
do you feel about Bobcat then when he was on? Yeah, well, funny enough, um, when I was a little kid, I had no idea who Bobcat Goldthwaite was, so that didn't take away from the scariness for me, but, um, yeah, I haven't seen that episode since I was a kid, and, um, maybe if I rewatched it now, it would be less scary now that I know who Bobcat Goldthwaite is. Hey, and remember, we actually met Gilbert Godfrey. Yeah, we did. He was, and funny enough, um, he was actually one of the more quiet and awkward celebrities I've ever met. <laughs> so kind of opposite of what his stage presence is. Loud. Yeah, well, I remember one of the things I remember is, like, he was awkwardly positioned, like his hand was over his head. And he was you know, loud, boisterous, and funny, but very socially awkward on a one-on-one. So, okay. yeah. You never know. Nope. Have, have you met any of the, ever met any of the cast members of the show? I have not. I live in Minnesota, which is right under Canada, but I've never been to Canada. Um, so I've never run into anyone up there. And I know I've never met anyone from the show. When people see your page on Instagram, do they ever think that you're Richard DuPont himself? Yeah, when I first opened it, I would get messages, like on Etsy, where I actually sell stuff. And they would say, this is the real Sardo. And, you know, no, he's uh, he's out to lunch right now. (laughs) I mean... If you paid me a little better, maybe I could uh, answer your questions for me. But so I had to like kind of spin it as, yeah, this is Sardo's Magic Mansion, but I'm just Brian, and you know I help out in the back. So he's never around. You know, he's always out doing his own thing. But uh, yeah, quite a bit, and even still, people will message me and ask if I'm the real Sardo. And it's never really clear if it's a child that's asking or just someone who genuinely doesn't know. So, um, what got you into the craft making? Um, have you always been a, a artist since you were a kid? Yes, definitely. Um, ever since I can remember my first aspiration uh, as an elementary school kid, I wanted to either be um, an animator for Walt Disney, chef, or just an Italian person. And they said I couldn't be an Italian person, and that ship had sailed. So it was between chef and animator. I didn't become either of those either. So, um, um, which artifact? I, I, you make a lot of artifacts for the show. Which artifact from the show would you say is like your absolute favorite? I think the twisted clock is probably my favorite. That's one of my favorite episodes. Um, I love that it takes place on Halloween. Uh, and the claw that I make glows in the dark, kind of like in the show when you make a wish. Uh, and it was really hard to make the first time, but now I've got it down. Uh, and there's some things that I make that are just like a pain in the ass to make, and I hate making them, but they look really simple. Uh, and the 
claw is not one of them. That's one of the easier things now to do. But I like that it's life-size. And when someone gets it, it's like a piece straight from the show. It's not miniature. It's not, you know, on a T-shirt or a, a coffee mug or something. It's an actual physical piece that you can hold and use your imagination to take you to that episode. And so that's how I got started making this, too, is because... Um, I have two kids, and ever since they were young, I've watched Are You Afraid of the Dark with them, but never, like, in order. And we had finally decided we were going to watch them in order because there was a new season coming out. Uh, and then that's where I got inspired to start making things from the show for the kids. And then as I posted photos online, other people were asking for it, and then I decided to start making it so that others uh, could bring those pieces home as well. I agree. Not only is it a very underrated episode, but the Twisted Claw was actually the true OG episode of the show. The, a lot of people don't know that the Twisted Claw actually aired well um, over a year before the Phantom Cab did it. But when it aired, um, Are You Afraid of the Dark wasn't yet a series. It was, that was just a Halloween special. Yeah, it aired in on Halloween of 1990 as a special The Twisted Claw did, and not until, like, 1992 did they turn Are You Afraid of the Dark into a series. Yeah, it was the one that started it all. Yeah. Great episode, too. I think my favorite part of that episode, or at least the scariest part for me, was when they run into that group of, like, hoodlums who are all wearing those really freaky masks and bombarding them. Yeah. Most people say the scariest part is when uh, they wish Grandpa was there. And then his car starts pulling up. <laughs> but he's dead. Yeah, that was really creepy, too. Um... Yeah, I thought the ending was psychologically scary when um they get the va vase and it's fixed again, and then you see that thing inside that says like that note that says trick or treat. That was a good way to end it. Um, wh which moment or moments of the show would you say actually legitimately scared you the most? That you still think about to this day? Um, I don't know that any of them actually scared me. They, I just like kids' horror anthology. Um, I like being told a story, whether it's good or bad. Um, but I don't know that any of them really scared me. Maybe the closest one was Dead Man's Float, the, the red scary dude coming out of the school pool yeah that's a very popular choice that that episode's a fan favorite i know when the majority of the fans are asked um what their the scariest episode to them was that's often a top pick um coley do or are there any moments you remember from the show that legitimately really scared you when you were a kid Now, and I'm kind of the same way. Uh, I've never been a really 
person who's afraid of the you know stuff that happens in TV and TV shows or movies. But I do know that there were a couple of them when they were talking about campfires or you know eerie, creepy things. Like same way, I'm a big fan of psychological thrillers. So anything that got me into that kind of a mode would definitely have brought some fear onto me. Yeah, um, for me. There were a few moments that I would say, especially two that really stand out that to this day, I get the chills thinking about one of them to this day. I still can't watch Um, the scene that I would say scared me. The app to this day scares me. The absolute most is the 180 head spin from the Phantom Cab. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I honestly, this is how much that scene still scares me. I can't even look at a still picture of that part. Even the picture alone freaks me out whenever I see it. Oh no, I think I've posted that picture on my Instagram before, so I apologize. <laughs> oh no, it's all good, yeah. I, th- I I think you did. I do think I recall um, seeing it on your page, and I immediately like <laughs> turned my head and flipped through it. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, his timing, uh, the actor's timing couldn't have been more perfect for that scene. Um, That was like the best delivery uh, uh, I've ever seen from an actor before. (laughs) And, And even his laugh was really terrifying. It was sort of like a super evil Joker laugh. But, but yeah, um, that that's an episode that I feel like it unfairly gets hated on a lot by fans. A lot of fans, um, they'll what's it called? Whenever I hear fans talk about that episode, all I hear them talk about is how bad the acting from the little kid in it was. Kid, yeah. yeah, the one who played Buzz, and I'll admit, yes, his acting sucked, but um. That doesn't take away from how great the other performances were, especially from Aaron Tager and I think Brian Dooley was the guy who played Flynn. Yeah, even if there is like some bad acting on these shows, it's easily overlooked, you know, because it's like a fantasy tale. You can kind of set that aside. I think Goosebumps has even worse acting. Yeah. So when you compare the two in like the same generation, it was like, man, Goosebumps, what are they doing over there? And I do love Goosebumps, and I like the books, and, and I like the show, but I just feel like they definitely cast higher talent on Are You Afraid of the Dark than they did for the Goosebumps series. And also for Are You Afraid of the Dark, I would say a lot of the high points in the show were not really meant to be the acting but the writing is what made the show so epic and and with a lot of um with a lot of tv shows i feel like tv acting in general is never like top notch the way movie acting is that you don't have to be like 
an Oscar-worthy actor in order to be a good TV actor. Correct, yeah. But... But yeah, that moment, and I would say the other moment that scared that to this day freaks me out, and I don't know if I'd be able to watch again is well, the whole episode of the nightly neighbors terrified me, and but especially the ending, the really dark ending. Yeah, yeah, because they they think that they're not vampires at the end, right? But then it turns out they are vampires at the end. Yeah, well, and it turns out that the head vampire is a little kid, and that's... Oh, yeah, yeah. And, it impli- and he had already been invited over to their house that night. It implied that they were going to get him that night. Oh, and they got him, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, we never had a part two. Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, to me, the absolute best episodes... Um, were the ones that had either really dark, tragic endings, or had um cliffhanger endings, or had like really freaky twists. Like, I preferred those personally over all the ones that had happy endings. I agree. Yeah, like the super specs is a great example. Yeah. At the very end, when they find out that they got trapped in this crystal ball or whatever by another dimension. And they literally had no way out. And um, the same with the ending of um, Pinball Wizard. How did that one end again? Where he found out that he not only had to play the game, but that he um, was permanently trapped in the game with absolutely no way out, implying that he was... Oh, yeah. yeah, he was literally going to die in the game. Yeah, that ending really fucked with my head as a little kid. <laughs> but I also liked the ones that, though though I wouldn't say unhappy endings, ended with um, a freaky twist, such as the tale of laughing in the dark. The twist at the end of that one I thought was epic when we find out... Uh, the about the truth about who the real Zebo was. And it was the carnival barker out front. Yeah. Yeah. So Coley, are there any moments you remember specifically from the show that really stood out for you, like from specific episodes? Uh I mean I have I have such a fondness for almost all of them that it's hard for me to pick one. And that is just true about the series. It was an amazing series and had great moments in it. And I would say even transformational. Um, So it's really hard for me to pick out a single one. Um, Yeah, no, it's all good. Um, So yeah, Brian, which specific moments I like uh, would you say were some of the best? Like I know you mentioned a couple of your favorite episodes, but which like moments would you say were some of your favorites? Hmm. Um It's a tough one. I wasn't prepared for moments. Um 
I don't know. I guess I'll go with the the same one everyone else does. The red guy coming out of the pool the first time you see him. That was pretty good. Um, I think about like the Silver Sight episodes where the Midnight Society got together. Those kind of stand out because it wasn't something we usually got to see. Um, Those are really the only ones that come to mind that kind of stand out. Which season would you say was your favorite season? I think I gotta say season five. Yeah, that had that some... was the one with Dead Man's Float. That one had Station One Hundred Nine. I think both of those were Tales by Stig, who originally didn't get in on his first story, which I thought was travesty. The kid told like two of the best tales ever, and they they're over here, you know, blocking him from getting in the Midnight Society. I think it was out of jealousy. Oh yeah, well that and I decades to say it. Yeah, I think it was a combination of that, and it was meant for the writers to show you like just how much they, from the get-go, real the other members really dislike Stig as a person. It showed yeah, season five was just put shit on Stig. Yeah, exactly. It showed that they were biased against Stig. That if it was one another person telling that story for initiation, they would have let him in right away. Yeah, at the very be- he wouldn't even have to finish the tale. But did you know? Fun fact: that's where the word stigma comes from. It was from season five when they were just being dicks to Stig. Because they didn't want him to get in, and you know that's where the word stigma came from. Yeah, I remember when he first. Oh man, yeah, that's crazy and funny enough. I remember when his character first came on. Before I actually looked at how his name was spelled in the credits, I literally thought his name was Steak. I thought they were calling him Steak. That's all he was, was a piece of meat to them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Coley, who was your favorite Midnight Society member? Do you remember any of them? Uh, not a whole lot, but I would probably have to agree with Brian. I think that is definitely one of the better uh, moments. Yeah. Yeah, um, Brian, who is your favorite Midnight Society member? I gotta go Gary. Because he was the leader? Uh, that, and I like the stories. Uh, when we went through and watched seasons one through, what were they, seven or one? Um, we would rate each episode on like a scale of one to five. So then, at the end of the whole series, I looked back, and I think Gary had the most vibes for me. So I liked his stories. And I think Gary's the only guy that you get uh, like Sardo from, I believe. So he was all the Sardo episodes, except for like the team up. Yeah, for me, I would probably say, and this was the one thing I didn't like about season five, Um, Frank was my favorite Midnight Society member. Yeah, I liked Frank, um, not so much, uh, I mean, I loved his stories, but 
Frank, he had my favorite personality out of all of them. I liked how he was like the sort of cool, badass guy of the crew. Yeah, the shot hunter. Yeah. Uh, even though we t- we find out later in season three, was it, that he really was afraid of the dark? Yeah. He was projecting. Yeah. Yeah, he denied it in season one in the dark music episode. He denied being afraid of the dark. Yeah. He's a liar. Can't be trusted. Get him <laughs> out of here. Let's bring in Stig. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, what's it called? One who just disappeared without even any explanation of his departure was Eric. After season one, there was no explanation of Eric's departure from the show. Yeah. What would have been cool is if they put him in an episode at a later season, like as a character in the tale. You know, like once you leave the Midnight Society, all bets are off. You can be in the story. Yeah, exactly. Sucks to be you. <laughs> that, that's how they get you to keep your mouth shut once you're out. But yeah, it makes me wonder if the actor, um, if his personality really was like Eric, if I wonder if he had like any sort of fallout with the rest of the cast. Because um, on the show, his character, the rest of the characters didn't really like Eric. But um, yeah, he, he, he was sort of like the pre-Tucker in a way. Yeah. But, but yeah. So um, do so you you sell a, a lot of merchandise um nationally, right? You, do a lot of people contact you regularly wa- wanting to buy your merch? Um, yeah, I do a fair amount of orders in the summer, and then in the winter, I'm very seasonal depressiony, and I live in Minnesota where there's all four seasons. And I only like the summer. So as soon as like September 1st hits, it's cold outside. I don't like, you know, I kind of hibernate for three seasons of the year. And then uh, summer will come around and, you know, the sunshine finally hits my skin again. And I feel motivated like I can, you know, try to make something new or whatever. So if you're looking for something and it's fall through spring and, you don't see anything in the shop. It's probably because I, I ran out of it and I'm just been too lazy to make it. But uh, in the summer, it's pretty booming. Around Halloween, it's pretty booming. Um, and I think I have like maybe seven or eight things on there right now. Um, the top things that sell are the actual props. And then I've got other things like buttons and temporary tattoos now. Because, um, you know, temporary tattoo is a very 90s thing. And so it's glow in the dark. So I tried to put like glow in the dark onto as many things as possible because as a nineties kid, I think of, you know, summers, super soaker, 50, uh, grenade shaped water balloons and glow in the dark stuff. Um, so I just, I love things that scream like I'm from the nineties, slap bracelets, all sorts of stuff. Uh, but it does do pretty well. I do ship to Canada, but I have not had a Canadian order yet. 
yeah, I think I'm close to 100 orders since I started two years ago. So it's not anything that like supports me, but it pays for the materials and the time for me to do it. I just got to hit stop recording real quick and um, I'll hit, I'll hit it right back. We're back. So, um, yeah. So Brian, do you have any questions for Coley? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. I do. Um, Coley, tell us a little bit about yourself. What year are you from? Oh, yeah. All right. So I am actually from the original millennial uh, year. I was born in 1982. So I'm actually 41. Uh, now, born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s. So I am with you on all of that. Super Soaker, Slap Bracelet, all the shows. Nick at Night, Are You Afraid of the Dark? All of that stuff. I'm definitely, definitely tied to the 90s. And the great TV shows that came from that. Yeah, I, I mean, I know that every generation, they say every generation keeps on saying their decade was the best. But I mean, with the 90s, in terms of entertainment, stats and critical acclaim speak for themselves. I mean... You can't say the 90s didn't have some of the absolute best movies ever made in a decade that gave us, like, Forrest Gump, The Shawshank Redemption, Schindler's List, um, what's it called, Pulp Fiction, The Usual Suspects, Fight Club, the list goes on and on. Yeah, you know, I'll say this. So if you really look at the early 90s, I'm like saying 90, 92, maybe 93, that's got a lot of remnants of the 80s. But once you start hitting 94, 95, and onward, then it's truly the 90s. But you know, you, you can definitely see there's still an influence in the early 90s from the 1980s. For example, Terminator 2 one of the best movies and certainly one of the best sequels ever came out in the early 90s. So it definitely had its own, you know, appeal and its own genre and character. But then the early 90s was still a bit of the 80s. But yeah, speaking of Terminator 2, I have Danny Cooksey, a.k.a. the Red Mullet, friend of John Connor, to thank for this podcast existing. I'm... Danny Cooksey was the one who helped me start it. Nice. Yeah, how did you meet Danny? Oh, it's actually a really funny story. Um, I met him on a 90s Nickelodeon fan page because um, my memory is so, so, like, vivid. I, I, I remember everything, and, um, and I, I was a huge Salute Your Shorts fan, so one day I just happened to write a status about the show and um me and this other guy who i guess had uh, has another very vivid memory the two of us were describing very in-depthly like every single detail from every episode and all of a sudden danny comments on it he goes haha you you guys remember more than i do <laughs> and so then we started talking. He accepted my friend request, and 
he actually teaches courses both in person and via Skype where he teaches all different forms of performing arts like music, um, acting, and I'm a stand-up comedian here in South Florida, so he teaches comedy too, and so I registered for his courses, and I'm in every week for it to this day well now usually once a month but for a while every week we were meeting via skype and he was helping me write new jokes and new material for my comedy that's awesome yeah no that's awesome and, and i agree that i agree to leave your shorts was an awesome show that i still have vivid memories of and one cannot overlook his character in that show. He was definitely major, major part of it. Yeah, That's yeah. Like probably the first face I think of when I think of Salute Your Shorts. And I didn't watch it that much because um, we didn't have it all, the, you know, cable all the time. And that was that was like one of the earlier Nickelodeon shows, I think. So I've seen quite a few, and I, I know the theme song and the beginning intro, uh, but I'm not familiar with you know, a lot of the episodes. Yeah, the theme song alone makes it impossible to forget Danny because he had literally the absolute most epic line in the theme song. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Coley, you remember which line I'm talking about, right? I, you know what, I am drawing right now and you tell me what it is and i'll remember because i know i know it because i've seen it and i grew up with it he's the one who when they're like and when we think about you and he interrupts and he goes it makes us want to fart ah yes that's that's right and that is a 90s kids type of attitude right there yeah, eat my shorts yeah that's definitely a 90s thing but yeah, and um, Danny plays into Are You Afraid of the Dark as well. Um, Coley, do you remember um, the episode that Danny actually starred in? The one about, it was called The Tale of the Guardian's Curse, and it was the one where he inadvertently brings the mummy to life. I think so, yeah. That was a good one. So, Brian, do you make memorabilia of any other shows from that era? I do not. Uh, I feel like I've been lucky so far because I kind of uh, tread the line of copyright infringement on something. Uh-huh. Yeah. With everything I make, I try to I make it as accurate as I can, but I also, make, on purpose, make it a little inaccurate. So that it's not a exact replica, which, you know, I know for the Twisted Claw, they just used like an actual vulture foot that they had, which is like, I don't know where you come across one of those, but it's like clearly Nickelodeon doesn't have a copyright on what a vulture's decaying dead foot looks like. Hmm. Uh, so if you do a side by side, you can tell like what the stuff's supposed to be, but, you know, and then I don't use any official images. I don't use the, the logo or anything like that. Um, but I feel like other franchises, like if I dabbled in Goosebumps, I think Disney has some kind of stake in Goosebumps now. I'm not sure if Disney's very like, we're going to sue you until you die 
you know? And I love Disney, but I don't want to get sued until I die by Disney. <laughs> I might not like them as much anymore. And uh, so, yeah. Are you afraid of the dark? They see you to death, man. You'd be a part of one of those episodes. Exactly, yeah. And I know with Are You Afraid of the Dark, it's kind of weird because I think a Canadian company still owns the rights to the show, but it, uh, Nickelodeon just, like, licenses it. So I, I'm not really sure. But I, to my knowledge, I haven't done anything to actually infringe on anyone's copyrights. And I wouldn't want to do that either because I, I respect artists and musicians and you know actors and writers and everyone that goes into making that. But I don't really feel like I'm taking away from anyone because no one else makes the things that I make. So I kind of like fill the void that was there that Nickelodeon or whoever else, Are You Afraid of the Dark, wasn't going to fill anyways. Yeah. And just different than if like I started selling shirts with Mickey Mouse on them because you can get a Mickey Mm -hmm. Mouse shirt from Disney and that money goes to Disney, you know, so I'm not stealing from anyone. But I mean, if someone contacted me and said, hey, you got to stop, I'd stop. Yeah, but you know, Brian, that's one of the things, you know, you would change just a little bit here and there definitely to avoid copyright infringement. But that makes it your own, man. That makes you a brand. And you think that's only you. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then yeah, also... Uh, but I do have a, another thing where I make, like, Minnesota knickknacks and souvenirs and stuff. And then I have a friend that has a physical store that I sell that in. And um, in all fairness, a lot of different artists um borrowed from Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, Are You Afraid of the Dark was heavily borrowed from like even M. Night Shyamalan admits that um the sixth sense was the whole idea for the sixth sense was because of the episode the tale of the dream girl yeah and he made a ton of money on that yeah he did and even his more recent movie entitled old i would say um old was kind of like the tale of the captured souls except on a beach Yep, I did see those comparisons when that movie came out. But yeah, and... Well, speaking of movies, I got another question for Coley, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so you, you said you were a composer. Uh, yes, sir. Composer. Do you make other music? Tell me. Yeah, so... Yeah, so... I was a music theory major for several years. And I started as a musician when I was young. Started with clarinet and then piano. And then I took up music in college. Now, I had to write some things on variations for school. Then later on, I tried to get into the Berkeley School of Music. And for that, I had to compose two contrasting, very different pieces. And a lot of my stuff is taken as an inspiration from James Horner, one of my favorites. And so I wrote those pieces, and I'm sure Dan has heard them. Uh, I did not get into the Berkeley School of Music, but I did enable myself to write those two big pieces and, and continue to take inspiration from them even today, as I still do write, mainly for myself, though. Okay. Is that the only kind of music you make is... Would it be like orchestral or? Uh, 
Yeah, well, so the pieces that I did, um, one of them had oboe, uh, keyboard, and flute. Or, no, I'm sorry, oboe, keyboard, and violin. The other one had keyboard, flute. And that one was a much more passive one. It was a much more serene, and I named it Serenity. Then the other one, that was a very aggressive, dark piece of music. So I mainly use finale as a means of composition, which I first start on my keyboard. But then when I feel that I've got something to work with, I'll start putting it in finale. So my stuff is mainly instrumental. I've added some vocals in some of my pieces, but I'm always trying to explore the different things as well such as hymns uh, from the keyboard or inspirational songs on the keyboard. Okay. Yeah, I used to make hip-hop music in my younger years, and I was in quite a few, like, garage bands across yeah. time. Um, yeah. It's rough out there. Yeah. Trying I to did. get anyone to listen to anything you make. Oh, yeah. yeah I did very, very briefly. Uh, a keyboard job in a band of one of my friends called Chains to Conform. And that was actually a metal band. Now, I myself didn't write any of this music, but that was something I was a part of. And yes, to your point, it is a cutthroat business. So not only is For it sure. difficult to get your, you know, music, you know your, your creation out there, because there's quite a bit of competition. It's difficult to even break through and get in there. Also, I think one of the harder things, but the best things you can do to break through there is become your own brand. Get that only you feel and composition out there. That will definitely help you make your shining moment. Oh, I fully agree, because every Friday there's new music that, you know, gets put out on Spotify, and every Friday that's the first thing I do each morning is I'm looking for that, that new sound I haven't heard before or that band that just does things differently, because I don't want to listen to what everyone else is doing. I want to listen to something fresh, yeah. something unpredictable. But yeah, that's great, so. Yeah. yeah. No, and I was going to say that, that's one of the things they'll teach you that makes music, some of the music out there, the best. The unpredictability. The unpredictable, unforeseen newness that is constantly evolving throughout the piece. And that's one of the reasons why some of the best groups are actually underground groups. And also, those are some of the groups that eventually become the most successful. Yeah. Yeah, and so what is your favorite band? Can I ask both of you favorite bands? Yeah, well, I'll go real quick. So, I'm a big fan of the 80s. I'll admit that. So, one of the bands I've seen three times is Foreigner, but another one of the bands that I've seen twice with, you know, the newer singer and not the original singer is Journey. 
So those two bands are actually I very much enjoy. For me, uh, what about you, Dan? Um, for me, funny enough, um, you said you used to write hip hop. Um, so did I. I grew up a huge hip hop fan in the '90s and early 2000s, and I personally despise what the genres become. But um, yeah, for me, um, one of the absolute best of all time was DMX. I I was a huge DMX fan. Um. I grew up, the first five rap albums in a chronological order that I ever got as a kid were um, Coolio Gangster's Paradise was the very first one. And then I got the, Fu- yeah, the Fuji's The Score was the second one I got. Um, Classic. Third one was LL Cool J, Mama Said Knock You Out. And fourth one I got was Puff Daddy and the Family No Way Out. And the fifth one I got... That's the double disc one, right? Or no? Um, was that one a double? No, I'm thinking of the, the Biggie album at that time. Yeah, Life After Death was the Biggie yeah, album. Yeah, the two disc. But yeah, yeah, Biggie was on quite a few of the songs on um, No Way Out. Um, that's what made Puff Daddy's No Way Out such a good album was he had like the whole entire crew on it. He had Biggie, Mace, Lil Kim, all of them on it. And mm. yeah, yeah, and so... and Busta Rhymes When Disaster Strikes. That was the fifth album I got as a kid. Now, I have a question for the two of you all then. So, you two are both, you know, grew up in the 90s like I did. Now, I agree with Dan. 90s hip-hop was awesome. 90s hip-hop was great. And I really loved all of them. But is there a particular genre or feel that you two feel that you have most identified with in your music hip-hop making? Oh, when I made music, what genre? Um, I was definitely more like, uh, my friend called it sing-songy, um, which is something that I feel like maybe Wiz Khalifa has kind of done. B.O.B. Uh, is kind of sing-songy, you know, where like his music's really approachable. It sounds kind of pop. It's not like... You don't have to be a rap connoisseur to get it. I don't know. Um, so my stuff was also kind of emo. It was in the early 2000s when emo was a thing. And I was big into emo music, but I made hip-hop music. So it was kind of like emo, sing-songy hip-hop, where, you know, I I'd never talked about guns or things that I didn't actually do. So it was about suburban white kid life. But it wasn't corny, I don't think. I, I think I put a, enough effort into it that it wasn't just passed out as corny. And I did record, like, two albums uh, as myself, and then I was in a couple rap groups that did some EPs. But I just found whenever I worked with others, it was like we couldn't really get a, a clear direction on where we wanted to go. Yeah. Um, so I preferred to be by myself most often because I had full creative control. Yeah, that's a band, that's a, a thing a lot of bands have problems with. 
they want to get off the ground. They've got to find a consensus. And that's a difficult thing to do in any band, is find a good starting ground that is a full consensus. And I think without that, you're kind of going nowhere. But definitely yeah. awesome. Yeah. And yeah. for me, the, the biggest roadblock was that I was always the most serious person about it. So, you know, you know, do you want to start this group with me? Oh, what do you do? You play this, or oh, I can write this. And then I would say, well, let's let's do a song to this. Maybe we could use this beat here. And then, like, by the next day, I'm like, what do you got? You know, I already have pretty verses and a, a hook, and maybe we could go in on this bridge together. And they're like, oh, I haven't gotten around to it yet. And then they never get around to it, because everyone wants to be in a band. But when you actually have to do the work, there was no one in my area that, you know, so it was like a drought, a musician, a lyricist drought in, in the area that I grew up in. Uh, so I just, my problem was never finding anyone as serious as I was. Got it. Uh, yeah. I understand that. And ahead, with, with hip hop, um, I think that one doesn't necessarily have to have grown up in a rough area to be able to, talk about like real topics like as much of a nut job as Kanye West may be as a person one thing I really respected about his music is that Kanye West um grew up in like middle class suburbia but he was able to still tell stories he was able to talk about real life topics and he was able to um talk about his life experiences and made them poetic um opposed to the crap you hear nowadays where they're all just talking about like the bling bling the bitches the jacuzzis and all that garbage yeah so what kind of a genre do you think as far as hip-hop goes in the hip-hop world inspired you dan and would you closely acquaint your music with um I would say, granted, um, a lot of street rap um, was what got me into, well, but also I did like a lot of early 90s dance rap, like LL Cool J was one of the first rap artists I really listened to when I was like seven. The song Mama Said Knock You Out got me hooked on hip hop. Um, this little-known um, white rap group from the early 90s called Third Base. Vastly underrated group, but the song, hit song of theirs, Pop Goes the Weasel, was another one of the first rap songs I heard, and that made me fall in love with the genre. Um, but yeah, I like political rap. I like street poetry rap. Um... I like pretty much any rap that involves talking about social commentary, talking about one's life story, talking about um one's view of the world and stuff. Yeah, I think they refer to that as like conscious hip hop, which would be like Taliquali, most deaf. Uh, Black Eyed Peas were like conscious hip rap or hip hop before they had Fergie, and then once they got Fergie, they could do pop music for the radio. Which I'm not hating on it. People love the Black Eyed Peas. I loved the first two Black Eyed Peas albums before Fergie, but I also liked the first Fergie album as well, Elephant. That was great. But uh, so you know, some people change. But yeah, I love uh, you know, Philip Quality. 
and like Nas even was kind of up there as well. Yeah. I was a big DMX fan myself too. I had all of his stuff unreleased, everything. Yeah. yeah. And I think I actually have his first single on on record. It was called Born Loser. I think it came out in '93. It's at my parents' house, but I do have it on vinyl. Oh, now that is nice. It's on vinyl. And I think one of the things that really stood out to me and kind of the both of y'all talking about that more, I have a real message to it. One of my favorite rappers who totally had a message was Tupac Shakur. Never heard of him. <laughs> was he East Coast? Down South? Who, Tupac? Yeah. Tupac? <laughs> Yeah, Tupac's one of the most legendary of all time. Yeah, so did you like Tupac better or Biggie? Um, I mean, what I... What do you think was actually the better rapper? I think in terms of flow, Biggie was better, but in terms of lyrics, I personally highly preferred Tupac because... Almost none of Tupac's songs talked about anything that were superficial. Like, I think Biggie, his songs that were good were amazing, but he had a few um, radio hits that kind of talked about the same crap they talk about now. Like the song Hypnotize, I think, falls into that category, or even Big Papa kind of falls into that category. Yeah. But Juicy, that one's a good one. I, I also agree that Tupac was the better lyricist. Yeah, because with Tupac, other than like California Love, almost every single one of his other songs talked about like meaningful issues. He never resorted to talking about like the big booty hose, the jacuzzi, the bling bling, or any of that. And, um, granted, I know some of the best rappers ever, they will mix it up a bit. Like, they'll have some radio hits, but also have a lot of real meaningful songs, too. Like, I think both Eminem and Ludacris are prime examples of that, where they have their radio hits, but they also have a lot of meaningful songs where they talk about real-life issues. Yeah. yeah, that way they get, you know, both pies. You buy the record if you want to, you know, hear some truth, but you also buy it if you want to party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Eminem, um, he'll talk a lot about his relationship with his daughter and what it was like growing up in a dysfunctional household and stuff, and a lot of people who don't listen to a lot of his music, they don't know him for that side of him. All they know, the only side of him they know is the slim shady side. And yeah. And with Ludacris, like a lot of people, when they think of Ludacris, they think of songs like my chick bad and um, what's your fantasy, but they don't think of, good songs of his such as Runaway Love or Tell It Like It Is? I'm probably familiar with more surface level Ludacris. I don't think I really dove deep on him, but I did like his his radio hits. 
Yeah. He is catchy, and he's not a bad actor either. He was pretty good in Crash. Even though, to this day, that's considered, like, the biggest best picture blunder of all time. I've never seen it. Yeah. I just gotta hit... Is there a crash? <laughs> yeah, it's about, um... Yeah, yeah, it's about, what's it called? A bunch of car crashes, and then people randomly get out of their cars, and they all start dialogues with one another about um racism and all these other sort of random topics it's it's um a good movie but it's not the most realistic movie which is what people critique about it they say that the dialogue in it, it is too much like a play and not enough like um an act and and doesn't pertain too much to real life situations I just gotta hit stop recording real quick, and alrighty, we're back. So yeah, as I was saying about Crash, um, Coley, have you ever seen Crash? I have a long time ago, and it was quite pathetic. Yeah, and um, you in while we were taking a quick recess, you were talking about how you're a very cultured person, and um. I'm sure you can admit that movie was not the most realistic in its dialogue. Yeah, no, not really. I can agree with that. And I don't know, I have to wonder, was that an intentional thing? Or was it something that just kind of played out and it's the wrong time, wrong thing? Um, yeah, I would say it's one of those that... People liked the movie because of its emotional factor. Like it was a very emotional movie, but um, I think after the year it came out was when people rewatched it, and that's when they were sort of like, "Yeah, this isn't as good as I remembered the first time I saw it." Yeah, definitely. And I do think that there's actually, you know. Some more than one 90s movie that had that kind of vibe where it was, a lot of them actually become cult flicks, you know? Some that aren't so good, they become the cult flicks of the day, and there are people that still go back and watch them. You know? Yeah. Brian, what are some of your favorite movies? Um, I like 1987's Dirty Dancing, starring Patrick Swayze. Don't put like Baby in the Corner. Nobody put Baby in the corner. corner. I like, or I love 1993's Jurassic Park. Um, I think all the Jurassic movies are great. They definitely degrade over time, like the newer ones aren't as good. But I, yeah, I love the first two. Um, but I do love them all as kids. Um, other 90s movies that I love. Jurassic Park probably set me up for the whole decade. That was like enough movie for the decade. But we saw a lot of movies at the drive-in movie theater, which was a cool way to take in a movie. I guess Hocus Pocus was really good. Yeah. Um, I did see Schindler's List as a child, and that fucked me up. Um, 
I actually kind of avoided any of that kind of stuff in school because it was just so horrific. I felt like I couldn't handle it as a child. That was the stuff that scared me, what humans do in real life. That's what scared me as a kid. Yeah, and, Sh- um, and Schindler's List is like one of those movies that almost nobody can watch more than once in their life because it's just that powerful. Yeah, it's, it's horrific to see. And that's just the movie, you know. So to think of the actual events is unfathomable. Um, other 90s movies, I don't know. Did you ever see, did you see Saving Private Ryan? That's another one that you can't really watch more than once. I haven't, but I did watch, I think, Band of Brothers or The Pacific. I think I watched The Pacific, the second miniseries that came off of that yeah that was a classic too that was oh that was pretty much just like the first 20 minutes of saving private ryan but yeah saving private ryan was literally putting older people into shock therapy afterwards um the for there were a bunch of world war ii veterans who saw that movie in theaters and then Afterwards, they literally sought shock therapy for themselves as a result. Dang. It was so jarring to bring back those memories. Yeah, I think it caused them a lot of, like, flashbacks, and some of them might have even had hallucinations in the theaters from the PTSD. Yeah. Hey, do you guys remember a movie called Clifford? It had Martin Short playing like a little kid. Yeah, you I see that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a movie no one remembers. So yeah, it was weird, but I liked it. Yeah, you know some other ones that I just thought of that you know surprisingly we didn't even talk about was MIB, Men in Black. Black. Yeah, and Clueless. I always thought that yeah. was a fun movie. I thought it was hilarious, and. You know, so there's some of those that were definitely bigger. Uh, I mean, Titanic was great. It's what you like or not, is you have to admit. Now, yes, with Lion King. Lion King came out in the 90s, and everybody loved Lion King. I did like Lion King. Yeah, if you didn't cry at Mufasa's death, you have a heart made of stone. <laughs> they just removed you from the theater immediately. They're like, excuse me, sir. There's no tears. Is that tears or sweat on your face? Oh, it's just sweat so hot in here. Get out. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to cry at the cartoon mind. I get out. Yeah. Yeah. Like, can't bring a stick anywhere. Yeah, in terms of Disney movies, the first half of the 90s, including that one, had three classic Disney movies in a row. Um, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and then um, The Lion King were all back-to-back from one another. Yeah, and I, I have to admit, I love all three. Uh, I can tell you, I even had the Aladdin video game, go figure. Yeah, because I'm one of the so earlier generations which started with NES. So I was a big video game person. And when Aladdin came out, the video game was something I went after because that's how much I loved and thought that that was a 
cool movie. Yeah, we had the Lion King game on Super Nintendo, and I remember never completing it because <laughs> it was so hard. Yeah, yeah. And that's some of them, like, I mean, with Aladdin, man, you definitely have to be nimble and know how to work that controller to get around. Yeah, and I feel like even if you were perfect, you could still die. Oh, yeah. That game didn't care. No. But yeah, the Aladdin was a prime example of, um, even though it was voice acting, a prime example of Robin Williams's geniusness. We have said no, no pun intended there. He was a genius. <laughs> yeah. He played a genie. Yeah, exactly. And then a genius in Flubber. There you go. There you go. Full circle. Yeah. And this is Doubtfire, another great movie of the nineties. Yeah. Another great oh, movie of the 90s. Yeah, I totally. And I will say, personally, I prefer the original Jumanji from the 90s than from the later Jumanji movies, even though they are funny. Although, my mother prefers the newer ones. Yeah, I, I like the original, too. My kids thought the new ones were funny, but uh, they also like the original. The original's the best. Yeah, yeah. I would go along with, uh, real quick, just to talk back for a moment about originals being better. I'm also a very nostalgic person. And I personally think the original Jurassic Park was one of the best. I think it's difficult. You know, maybe the third one could be considered one of the last real good ones. But when you started going into these newer Jurassic movies, you could see the play on the old movies and how the originals, in my opinion, far superior to the newer ones. I'm so sad that with the original, I wasn't allowed to see it in theaters when it came out because my parents thought it would be too scary for me at age eight. And so I really wanted to see it in theaters, but my parents refused to let me. Well, that sucks. Yeah, so... Yeah, I missed out. And funny enough, um... Uh, we were just talking about Saving Private Ryan. They're both Spielberg movies, and that's another movie I remember my parents refusing to let me see in theaters. I wanted to see that when I was, like, 13, and um, my parents refused to let me. One of the only other movies besides those two I can recall they refused to let me see in theaters was My Girl. Oh, no, that's a, that's a big... Yeah, well, because I, I guess the reason they knew they um wouldn't let me watch that one in theaters was because they knew how much I loved Home Alone and they had heard about what happens at the end of My Girl, so they were, yeah, they were so afraid I was going to be traumatized by seeing Kevin McAllister die. Exactly. <laughs> but I will say this yeah. though, my girl is one of those movies that, a you know, it really touched you at the end. It pulled at your heartstrings. Like it was really good. It, and it's so, and it was one of those movies. It was a family movie, but it dealt with some really dark topics. I mean, 
to be able to make a family comedy about a movie about a pallbearer and a girl who's obsessed with death and everything is very hard to do, and it takes a lot of skill to be able to make a movie like that. And I think that... Yeah, and you know how serious it is if Dan Aykroyd's not cracking jokes, so... Yeah, exactly. It's a um, serious role. But yeah, it took a really dark topic, but it was able to make it relatable and it was able to engage audiences. And I think that's the best kind of art. Like, um, I've always, when it comes to mo dark comedy movies or generally dark stand-up comedy, I've always been more impressed and had a lot of respect for those who can take really unfunny topics and make them funny like George Carlin and um Richard Pryor did. Yeah, and I think that's another hallmark of 90s movies is they were very family friendly and family oriented. Yeah, and um what's it called? It, um, turning dark topics funny. There's I forget whose page it was on YouTube. This guy who would take like um previews from old classic '90s comedies and he'd splice them up and everything, and he with um dark music in the background and stuff, and he'd jokingly make the trailers out to be horror films, like he. He he made Home Alone and um What About Bob both out to be horror films. Now that is funny because that could not be further from the truth. Those two. Yeah, I wonder what the spin on What About Bob was. Is he, he like a stalker? Yeah, he he, he <laughs> split. He made it out to be a movie about like a violent, a uh, dangerous stalker. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. And you know something that's interesting is when you can turn something so scary into, or I should say funny into something scary, it becomes even more scary sometimes. Because that which you love, when it becomes something dark and unlovable, you know, hits us even harder. So that's an interesting, that's an interesting idea. Well, in shows like Are You Afraid of the Dark, what I love is um, it, it was a prime example of, in the 90s in general, was a prime example of how censoring art like they do nowadays, watering down art, doesn't, um, in a lot of ways, seems to have the reverse effect on society because um, it feels like the less dark and the less... Um, the, the more PC art got, the le the darker and less PC society as a whole got outside of art. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting thought. That's pretty true. Like, it feels like the more, the less violence there is on screen now, the more violence there is in the real world. That does feel true, yeah. Man, and there could be several factors to that. I mean, you know, you could say that, oh, people are letting their, you know, emotions out through their expression. 
very true. But you could also say that we've oriented ourselves, you know, against the expression and we've allowed ourselves to become more darker through the need for further expression. But but yeah, I mean, what's in the 80s too or a decade where in the 80s you could get away with so much on screen, so much in comedy, so much on TV, and um, what's it called, half the problems that it feels like exist now felt like they didn't really exist during that time period. That's not to take away from the fact that, yes, like every decade there were a lot of problems, but it feels like it was less pervasive back then. Well, the other thing is, I saw a National Geographic uh, documentary that was called 80s, The Decade That Made Us. There's a lot of stuff in the 80s that you could get away with that later ran into the 90s, but they tried to correct all the things and make them a little less, you know audacious than they actually were in the 80s. Because, you know, some of the um, least family-friendly PG movies came out in the 80s, like movies like Airplane, um, even Ghostbusters was definitely, by today's standards, not a kid's movie. Um, Yeah. I actually saw Spaceballs before I ever saw Star Wars. Which oh, nice. the original was Spaceballs, which was the knockoff, you know, yeah. make fun of version. Yeah, and you know, Dan and I have and could still quote that movie all day long <laughs> and laugh about every line in it. Yeah. And, it, and yeah, yeah. B- back then, um, PG-13 didn't really exist. Like, the PG-13 rating, it existed, but they practically never used it. So Yeah. You, you only got so many PG-13 ratings you could use in the 80s, and they didn't want to run out of them. There was a yeah. finite supply. They're like, I don't know, slap a PG on that one. <laughs> yeah. Airplane even got away with showing a woman's bare chest in one scene. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's true, I mean... But one other thing that was awesome is how the 80s had that free reign and came up with so much substance that at times was very, again, audacious, but quite entertaining and... Uh, captivating, if you will. Yeah, the movie Caddyshack was actually filmed um, literally about 10 minutes or less from where I live. Um, Caddyshack was filmed on this golf course that's in Davie, Florida. Can you hear the Kenny Loggins music from your house? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I... I know a couple older, much older people who um were telling me that 
they were members of that um golf course when um during the filming of that movie and they said they actually got to meet like Chevy Chase, Rodney Dangerfield and Bill Murray. Yeah, three of the biggest legends of all time, probably, um, especially Rodney Dangerfield. And yeah, yeah, and he's one of those people that was in a lot of movies, especially in the eighties, that were very family friendly, like you know, um, Back to School, and you know things like that. Those are the kind of movies that he did that were actually really cool back then, and I think even now. But yeah, and he was one that he got started pretty late when he got his big break. When he he was at least in his early to like mid forties, I think, when he got his big break in showbiz. So there's still time for all of us. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it feel that that is one good thing is the longer people are living like we are now, um the more time we have to still be get our big break in middle age. I feel like, yeah, yeah, 40s, like the new 25. Yeah, and think about it. You still got um, baseballs. Uh, now, now, Brooks is still around. I mean, the man's like 97, but he's still around. So, yeah, there's definitely time. Yeah, but yeah, there and, and and there's so many different um forms of I would say making it in showbiz. Like people, when they think of the term making it, they they think like becoming famous, becoming a big A list star. When there's def- different ways of making it. Like even if you you could be like a big time agent who nobody knows who you are, but you're still making a ton of money and um, you're still a huge success even though people don't know you because you're behind the scenes. Yeah, I think that would be ideal. I wouldn't want people to know what my face looks like. <laughs> I kind of agree with that. Yeah, funny enough, um, I'm actually friends. Well, I lost touch with, but... For years, I was good friends with Mick Foley, the wrestler. He would come down here and visit periodically, and any time I and a couple others would be, like, out to dinner with him and stuff, people would run up to him while he was eating. Um, And he was always usually a good sport about it, but there was one time there were people literally, like, running up and bugging him right in the middle of the waitress taking his order. And so that's when he did he snap at him. Well, not so much snap, but he was he he was like to him, "Hey, do you guys mind if I finish ordering my food?" <laughs> yeah, that would bother me. I think because I worked in customer service for so long, and you're constantly getting interrupted while you're doing your regular store job by the customers, which I guess is the real job. But uh, so you'd be in the middle of like. 10 things because of course you're, you're short staffed and then you have someone that's constantly hounding you anytime they see you because you're wearing the uniform and I imagine that's got to be 10 times worse as a uh, celebrity I bet Ryan Gosling 
it stopped quite a bit. <laughs> and they're never like, hey, man, I love your band, Dead Man's Bones. It's always, love you in the notebook. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that people don't really think about, that these people, such as Kevin Bacon and others, actually have their own band. Yeah, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, um, Donnie Wahlberg, of course, New Kids on the Block. Yeah, and Donnie Wahlberg, you know, he made an appearance that you're speaking of uh, in The Sixth Sense. He was in the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, one role that I, he was almost unrecognizable in was, I don't know if you're a fan of the Saw movies, he was the star of Saw 2, the second Saw movie. I can't do the Saw movies. Yeah, too gruesome. <laughs> too gruesome for me. I like a good thriller, but I don't like a lot of stabby stabby. Yeah, well, the first one wasn't too bad when it came to that. The first one um, was more psychological than it was about the traps and the gruesomeness. It was mostly the sequels that got that way. Yeah, I saw the first one and never touched a sequel. <laughs> yeah. I was out. I said, where's the PG-13 rating on this? <laughs> yeah. So... So then, Brian, what about the movie Scream? I mean, everybody's got a love Scream, but, you know, there's some stabbing like going Scream. on there. Yeah, so I guess the stabbing in Scream I can, like, put away a little bit because... It's so, like, campy. It's the main focus of the movie, yeah, and it's, like, a typical slasher film. But uh, Saw was just, like, the contraptions. And I think even if they didn't show the thing going off, my mind can fill in the blank, and that's not where my mind likes to go. But, yeah, I, I grew up watching Halloween as a kid and all those and the original sequels that they made. Yeah, the original Halloween had no blood. The original Halloween was a prime example of how you can make an epic horror movie without any blood. Yeah, and I like those. Yeah. And I think some of the best, like I said, best horror movies, I do know if you call them horror, but ones that definitely are appealing to me are psych thrillers. I mean, I love, like you said, I love to think, I love to imagine, and I'm always wondering what's going on next. So psych thrillers are definitely appealing. And Sixth Sense, there's an example right there. The Silence of the Lambs, prime example. Saw that as a kid too, too soon. Yeah, um, PG thirteen. <laughs> and um, what's so cool about those movies is um, and what makes that movie Silence of the Lambs so scary is the fact that the killers in that movie are inspired by r actual real life historical murderers. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and, and I don't know if everyone knows it, but. Ed Gein was one of them. And Ed Gein was, was a guy who was said he was psychologically abused by his mother. And so all the women he killed had reminded him of his mother. And he did literally 
pulls, puts them upside down and let the blood drain and then you skin them and that's where you get uh buffalo bill yeah yeah one of my jokes i i always end with in my stand-up i go i hope nobody was too offended by anything i've said i go the reason for my style of joke telling is a lot like Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. I only do what I do just to get underneath your skin. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I always, I normally always end on that joke. I always end my set with that one. <laughs> and nice. this other old school reference I use sometimes like that um that only the over like 50 or over 60 crowd seemed to get a few years ago when covid hit i was like you know i bet rosie o'donnell has caught the virus multiple times because according to paul simon rosie's the queen of corona Yeah, you can ask Julio, too, if you don't believe Paul Simon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, I just got to hit quit, stop recording real quick, and I'll click it again. All righty, we're back. <laughs> Thank you to Crest White Strips. <laughs> Let your smile sparkle with Crest White Strips. So, um, Brian, are you a fan of stand-up comedy? Um, yeah, I don't seek it out as much as I should. Um, I feel like that's probably because, you know, I got kids in the house. So if I were to take in like a, a special or something, I find on either YouTube or Netflix or something, I'd probably want to, you know, not be in the same room with the kids. It's a, you never know how tame it's going to be going into it, especially if it's someone you've never listened to before. But, but I, I'm a huge sketch comedy fan. I've seen, you know, probably every Saturday Night Live that's occurred since I was born and on. And, you know, a lot of the old ones. Um, huge comedy fan. I always tell people I have a high tolerance for comedy because it, it takes a lot for me to laugh. And I feel bad not laughing at, you know, some people's attempts to, to be funny because I know that's what they want. But for me, I just can't genuinely go, ah, ha, 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 you know. Because I feel like I'm lying to them. And I don't like lying. But uh, because of watching so much Conan O'Brien and The Simpsons and SNL as a kid, I feel like it's really calloused my ability to laugh at some of the more everyday things that I feel like the normal population can enjoy. Is, yeah, um, a lot of... Uh... One way I would describe my humor, um, I have, I, I, I'm a lot of one-liners. Um, that's my main shtick is I'm a lot of one-liners, and I'm not gonna lie, I tend to get very risque with a lot of my humor, but I try to, um, make it not so offensive to the point that it's gonna completely turn others off. I try to like get what I like, how I like to put it get right on that line without crossing it. Uh-huh. Which is tough these days. Because the line is a zigzag now. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I do have some really dark topics that I'll sometimes joke about. But um, overall, I would say that 
a lot of my jokes are references to like current to current events or to um other pop culture events yeah if i were a comedian i think my style would be observational where i'm like you know jerry seinfeld what's the deal with these you know people are paying money to go to disney world (laughs) oh just like every day oh man can you believe these grocery bags they're using nowadays see toilet paper thicker than this you know stuff like that just off the top of the head i don't know everyday things and then you know telling jokes and stuff at work uh, with other humans interacting and stuff, usually I'll like come up with something, and then I always like to come back to that at the end, you know. So, you know, we made a comment about PG thirteen, and then you kind of bring it all full circle at the end with that inside joke that you set up with whoever you're talking to at the beginning of a thirty minute, let's not work, let's you know just talk type thing. Um, so I kind of feel like I've done many stand-up sets for co-workers and whatnot uh and i genuinely can get them laughing pretty hard but yeah i try not to be too edgy uh, because i just feel like that's just not my personality but uh i appreciate all forms of comedy because physical comedy doesn't really do it for me but i know a lot of people love physical comedy so you know jim carrey's always gonna have a place for them um and then there's like smarter comedy that I like to, but I think observational comedy is probably my favorite where it's, you know, let's make fun of this thing right now in the moment. Yeah. And Dan, mm-hmm. don't you have, or aren't you, I should say, a huge fan of Three Stooges? Oh, yeah. And what what I love about the Three Stooges, when everybody thinks of them, all they think about is the slapstick, but um, the Three Stooges actually had a, lo- a lot of really brilliant one-liners liners too, and so many brilliant play-on words. Like, one of my favorite moments is when Larry tells them he's part Russian, and Curly goes, Russian, eh? Well, then quit stalling. Yeah, he, a play on words, but also making a Stalin reference. And um, another one where they tell everybody they just got back from visiting Paris, and somebody's like, what did you do there? Visited all the Paris sites. Yeah. That's a joke. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I love the Three Stooges, and, um, I think, yeah, I'm, I have mixed feelings about physical comedy. I think that I agree with you, a lot of slapstick is just dumb. Like, I was never a fan of Jackass, but I do, I did love Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, I like Leslie as well. Is he still alive, by the way? Has anyone Googled him in a while? Oh, no, he's actually been dead for a long time. Yeah. His career, him physically. Um. Oh, no, his, him physically. He's been dead for, like, at least 10 years. No way. Yeah. Yeah, he's actually buried in, um, f- not far from me in Fort Lauderdale. 
there yeah there's um you can actually i heard um in downtown fort lauderdale you can go visit his tombstone um there it's like a tourist attraction where people go people actually pay to visit leslie nielsen's cemetery leslie nielsen's grave Who's taking the money on that? There's like an attendant there. Yeah, I think and so. Like box office, <laughs> right outside his tomb. Yeah. Five bucks to see the tomb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, like deer you can feed, and they give you like a handful of like corn. How <laughs> Leslie would have wanted it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, he was great in airplane, and uh, I think. He's in a movie called Repossessed that I remember from a kid that was a comedy. Um, he was in a couple of the scary movies. Yeah, and Wrongfully yeah, Accused. No, yeah, Spy Hard was very underrated. I don't think I saw that one. But yeah, yeah in terms of slapstick, Jackass I never liked. I never found Jackass funny. I didn't get into that either. Yeah, I, I always just found it really, really stupid, and I'm not in a clever way either. Yeah, I get the appeal, though. It's like, oh, you didn't expect him to flail his arms like that. Look at those arms go. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it's like, I, I, I get that. I get that it's funny for you. I'm so sorry. Please don't think I'm being mean right now by not laughing. <laughs> I remember when I went with a few friends to see the third movie in the theaters because they were big fans of it. It was like a completely full theater, and I was like the one and only person in the theater who wasn't laughing at all throughout the whole entire movie. Everybody else was like dying of laughter, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow, this is really stupid. Yeah, so I think maybe people like that might not have an actual funny friend in their life. Where they're not being exposed to some of the funnier aspects. And they go in and enjoy something like that. But good for them, you know? Because then there's less people in the theater, you know, two doors down, where I'm wanting to get a good seat to see something. So I appreciate that there's stuff for everyone in the world. And even if I don't get it or like it, like new hip hop, like you said, I'm also not a fan. I yes, I understand why people like it, but I think you have to be younger to fully understand it. Um, but I'm glad that they have that because then there's less people showing up to the concert that I'm buying tickets to. Yeah, that's true. And concert tickets are so expensive nowadays too. Like I remember back in our day concert tickets were like what 50 bucks and now they're like more than twice that amount oh they're going beyond twice that amount my friend they used to $300 on Phil Collins yeah I um Phil Collins oh I love Phil Collins I saw uh, the newer journey and the new um, corner right near where uh, Dan's at at Hard Rock. Uh, and I had bleacher seats for $79. Now, I wanted a middle-level uh, 
ticket to see Phil Collins, and it was $300. And I said, I love Phil Collins, but I'm not paying $300 for that seat. Yeah, I wanted to see at the end of, towards the end of this year at the Hard Rock right near me, um, Guns and Roses are coming, and um, I looked at ticket prices, and, and the nosebleeds are over 600 bucks. Terrible. And most of that money doesn't even go to the band. Yeah, with 600 bucks, you can get, like, um, you can see, like, six other shows for that price. And you gotta remember, though, it also depends on the venue. You know, some of these venue places just charge outrageous maintenance fees and food. I like that there's a handling fee when you buy the ticket online and it's never physically printed. You just keep it on your phone. <laughs> and they're like, handling fee fourteen eighty eight per ticket. It's like, what did you handle? A robot did the whole transaction. If anything, you should be paying me money. You used to save like $2.25 if you wanted to print your ticket at home. Now it's just like, yeah, you can go fuck yourself. Here's your ticket. Mm-hmm. Although one group I lucked out, well, it was actually two groups and one that I saw recently that I really lucked out with the price. Um, with taxes and everything, it cost me only 50 bucks to see the Temptations and the Four Tops. And, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that it, it was a top-notch concert too. Like they were both incredible. And um, yeah, w- without taxes, the tickets were like forty bucks for a okay seat, which um, nowadays is like a steal. Yeah, and you know, I'll tell you another place. And I've been to tons of concerts. When I got the Trans Siberian Orchestra for twenty bucks. Now, people say, that's ridiculous. Well, yeah, of course it is. But guess what? There's a secret. You go to StubHub, and you buy the tickets either right before comes everybody's trying to sell them, or you might get lucky, and right as they go on sale, there's not that much. So there are some tricky ways to do it, though. Yeah, right place, right time. I genuinely try to avoid, like, arena shows. So, like, I like a band, and they'll get big enough that they can play arenas, and it's like, I guess I can't see you until you start touring casinos. <laughs> well, no. I was like the closest deal, you know? Like, I don't want to be a million miles away in the same room, and then I got to watch it on the TV screen off to the side because I'm so far away. Yeah, exactly. And I'll agree with you. I've seen some pretty good bands at music festivals. I saw the Contemporary Boston band, band Boston, at a music festival where I also saw Lindsey Sterling, an extremely talented violinist, if you're not familiar with her. I saw them both, and I saw the Jewish rapper, and I cannot think his name. Marv Yahoo, I'm a huge fan. Yep, there you go. Yeah. Oh, oh man, I'm so jealous you got to see him, because I heard he kind of sucks live now. He might have some alcohol issues. Yeah, now this is a while back. 
this is a while back. But yeah, man, you can see a ton of concerts just by going to music festivals. And it's shocking. Yeah. Yeah, this year, I think this year I've seen a lot more musical plays, and I've seen I've seen a few concerts this year, but this year I've seen more Broadway musicals than I have any other year of my life. And that sounds nice, though. Yeah, I love Broadway productions like that. Um, I recently saw a Beetlejuice the musical at the Broward Center. In Fort Lauderdale, that was an amazing production. And, um, yes, I saw Mean Girl, my, one of my best female friends, she's a big Mean Girls fan. We went to see Mean Girls, the musical, a month ago. And, um, we saw Wicked earlier this year, Wicked. I had never seen it before. I was blown away by it, um. Holy, you're a fan of Wicked, right? Yes, I am. And I have seen that multiple times. And it's a great concert. In fact, I recently saw it here at the Kennedy Center. And that was such a treat. Uh, I hear Menzel was the best at Wicked. Oh, she was in it when you saw it? Huh? Did you see Adina in it? or? Oh, no. No, oh, no. I, she only did the original run, right? Yeah, she was the original, and I personally think she was the best. Yeah. And it's a comedy. It's funny. And it's got some great music in it. Um, so I would definitely recommend it. And the special effects in certain scenes are amazing, too, like... I loved the animatronics and all the scenes that involve her visiting the wizard. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Definitely some good effects. Some good, you know, things that enhance the story. Other than just the music. But the more vivid things that help them interact and bring the story to life are definitely cool. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a diehard fan of live events. Um, going to live events is like my absolute favorite hobby, favorite thing to do. Um, I'll go to anything from like live magic shows, Broadway musicals, concerts, um, even sporting events and stuff like that. And um. Yeah, I've seen like four magic shows in the past year. Um, those have all been pretty cool. Um, and you were talking about festivals. I love festivals too. Um, uh, um, ha- Coley, you've been to the Renaissance Festival in the past, right? Yes, I have been there, and that was definitely cool. And in fact, uh, you recently had one of best act in that festival on picture. Yeah, the Magnificent Mooney, this guy who does all these circus tricks, including like fire eating, and he does a bunch of miming on stage. And, um... Yeah. Yeah, Brian, have you ever been to the Renaissance Festival? Yeah, here in Minnesota we have one every year at the same spot. I- been a bunch as a kid and then as an adult I went it's not 
that great year. And I don't know if that's just because I've always known of a Renaissance festival, so it's not as like alluring anymore. But uh, they're all right. I, I have been to one magic show. It was the guy from Saved by the Bell that would do magic tricks at the Max. Oh yeah, the guy whose name was Max. Yeah, I think he, yeah, he was Max on the show. I can't remember his name in real life, but he came to like a theme park and did like a month of shows, and I saw him when he was there. That's awesome. Yeah, I was a huge Saved by the Bell fan. Um, I could not be more happy at the fact that I was able to meet Screech like two or three years before he died. Yeah. Yeah, and I met him yeah, in... I was a huge Saved by the Bell fan too. That and Boy Meets World were probably... I think Boy Meets World is probably my favorite show of the night. Yeah, I feel bad when I met Screech. I couldn't help but geek out over him because I was such a huge fan. Um, he he was doing a stand-up special, and I told him before to show like how huge a fan I was that he was a childhood idol. And then he gets up on stage and he's like, "I have stage fright right now." I was in like the front row. He goes. That's because I met you, and you make me really uncomfortable, sir. He's like, he told me I'm his idol. That scares the living shit out of me. Awesome. That he brought you in like that? Yeah. And I was wearing my Kelly Kapowski t-shirt, and he goes, I see your... But yeah, he, he goes, I see you're wearing a Kelly shirt. You better not be wearing Screech boxers or the show's over. Rightfully so. Yeah. Was he funny, though? Um, yeah, he was actually surprisingly hysterical. He was really funny. He was very dirty. Okay. Um, did he do any material on, like, Saved by the Bell, or does he try to avoid that? Yeah, he pretty much tried to avoid that. Okay. But yeah, um, yeah, I know what's it called. That's what sucks about playing that type of role, the kind of role that Screech was or the kind of role that Steve Urkel was, is you play an iconic nerd like that and nobody can ever see you as anything else ever again. Yeah, I think there's only one person that successfully emerged from that, and I think it's Neil Patrick Harris who, you know, he's known for a ton of stuff now, so that it's not always Dookie Hauser. Yeah, well, he was really smart playing um, a fictionalized parody of himself in Harold and Kumar, because that was the role that I think really saved his career. I 100% agree. I saw that movie five times in theaters. I loved it so much, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. And I went to White Castle after two. They have those here. Yeah, I, I, they had none of those in Philly, so until that movie, I didn't even know that that place existed. It, and then, what's it called? They don't have any down here in South Florida, but once that movie came out, I started buying the frozen ones from supermarkets. Yeah, so it worked. It's all a commercial. Yeah. 
Although the frozen ones are not that good, I would imagine at the actual stores are probably way better because the frozen ones I've never been impressed with. No, the frozen ones not as good. Yeah, Coley, um, I, you've never seen those movies, right, Coley? Which ones? The Harold and Kumar movies. I saw the first one. I did not, and I only saw it once. Not that it was bad, but it wasn't my style. And I know I did not see the second one. Yeah. So I was, I was kind of a pothead back then, so it was totally my style at that time. Do you like weed? Yes. Do you like White Castle? Yes. <laughs> That's a movie. Yeah. Nice. About my movie at the box office, the same one where you can get uh, tickets to Leslie Nielsen's grave. <laughs> Callback. I love the second one for the mere fact that the second one was by far the raunchiest and most un-PC of the three movies. Yeah, the second one I wasn't a fan of. I was like, yeah, they tried. Wasn't my thing. And then I never saw the third one, which I think was a Christmas one. Yeah, the third one was good. I liked the third one. But yeah, with the second one, I feel like they went more for how far they could push the boundaries than they did for the laughs. Like, the second one, the, the, the they're like, yeah, let's just see how far we can push the boundaries, how much we can offend everyone and anyone. And, yeah. And, I and le- then it starts getting, like, the jackass approach. Yeah, exactly. At least, no, at least they didn't exclude any targets in the second one, I'll say that much. Um, they picked on everyone and, ev- and anyone, every and any and every group. And, I don't even remember it, other than it was called, like, Escape from Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. But that's the only part I remember, <laughs> the title. Yeah, it was the one, that was the one where, um... Kumar tries sneaking a bong, sneaks a bong onto an airplane, and um, the woman on the plane sees this um Indian guy with smoke coming out of his mouth, and she thinks that he's a terrorist who is like trying to bomb the plane, and <laughs> so that's why they get sent to Guantanamo Bay because they're mistaken for terrorists. Oh yeah, common mistake. Yeah. Happens to all of us. Yeah, exactly. It was funny, the part where then he's like, he yells out loud, don't worry, it's just a bong. And people thought he said bong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. True. True that. You know me, man. I'm not a big raunchy comedy fan. Yeah, I mean, what's it called? Raunchy comedy, I love, but it needs to be funny, like, not just raunchy for the sake of being raunchy. Yeah. I do love, um, the 2000s, I thought, had a lot of great ones, like Knocked Up, Super Bad, um, Pineapple Express, and all those old school 
Yeah, those are good. Pineapple Express is good. Yeah. I didn't think Super Bad was that great. I like Knocked Up, old school. Yeah, yeah, I do agree. I think Super Bad's kind of overrated. I thought super bad it was all right, but everyone made it out to be like the funniest thing in the world. I didn't think it was that good. That's like the Hangover movies. I only saw the first one, but before I saw it, there was like a million people at, at that job I was working, and they're like, it's the funniest movie you'll ever see. So then when I saw it, I went in thinking, this is going to blow my mind. And then I realized, man, all them other people think things are funny, but I don't. Yeah, and the yeah, other I thing is... And I was like, yeah, it was great, man. Love Hangover movie. Awesome. What was your favorite part? Oh, you know, the part where everyone was laughing. I was laughing, too. <laughs> and I feel like some of the gags in that movie were recycled from other movies, like the tiger waking up in the car. That was no different from the deer and Tommy boy. Wasn't there like a, a panther or jaguar or something in Harold and Kumar as well? Oh yeah, the jaguar that they got stoned. Yeah. Alright, I just gotta hit stop recording real quick and um Alrighty, we're back. So yeah, um yeah, you were talking about the scene in Harold and Kumar where um he um where they're they get the cheetah stoned and they're riding it trying to get to White Castle on the cheetah. Yeah, which was a great visual. I remember laughing out loud at that part because it was just so dumb, you know? Sometimes something can just be so stupid that you're like, wow, that's hilarious. I think one of my favorite parts, though, from that movie was the bag of weed when it came to life and his fantasy. Yeah, that was a dream sequence. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and at the end, yeah. It was just great. I don't remember all the specifics. It was... I remember... That part was probably my favorite part of the movie. Just the stupid dream that the bag of weed had a personality and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, um, what's it called? Um, do you, I know you know Brett Wilson, who's another big um, 90s enthusiast artist. Um, how, how did you and Brett meet? Did you guys meet on, like, social media? Met on social media. Um, he reached out to me very early on when I started posting some of my work. Um, and then that's how I found out about his book. So I got his book. The Are You Afraid of the Dark Book? Yeah, his Are You Afraid of the Dark Book. I guess I don't remember the exact order. I might have reached out to him first looking to buy the book. And then that's how we knew each other. But yeah, we talked um, occasionally off and on since then. And he's into the Splat Attack podcast now, which is great. I've checked out a few of their episodes and they've really covered Are You For The Dark pretty well. Oh yeah, he's a connoisseur of that show. Well, of 90s Nickelodeon in general, but especially of Are You Afraid of the Dark, he's a connoisseur of that show. Definitely. Yeah, when you said he's possibly going to be on today, 
I was uh, pretty stoked because I knew that anything I couldn't remember that you couldn't remember, you would know because you've seen every episode so many times. Yeah, I know. Sorry about that. It, I invited him, but it turns out that he's actually moving to a new place. So um, he and he said that he's like really swamped with moving things and stuff, and so that for the next few weeks he's he, he's going to be like out of commission, and I don't think he's doing like really any podcasts until he's settled into his new place. Sure. He's in Florida too, right? Um, I think he's in Connecticut. I'm not sure if he's moving out oh, of state or not. But yeah, he, yeah, he's been on uh, quite a few of my previous episodes. He, he and I recently we interviewed um Phil Moore from Nick Arcade. That does not ring a bell to me. Neither does Nick Arcade, actually. I yeah. apologize. Anyone listening? Yeah, Nick Arcade was, um, that was the video game game show on 90s Nickelodeon, the one where they would do all those video game challenges. Hmm. Was it like mid 90s, late 90s, early 90s? Um, yeah, it started in the early 90s and went to, like, the mid-90s. I want to say it started in, like, maybe 92 and went till about 96, at least. Okay. Yeah, I don't recall ever seeing that one. I must have been on the Disney Channel at that time. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, we interviewed him. I had, um him and Danny on in the past a, few, a couple times at least there there was one episode where we it was him Danny and um Venus to Milo Thomas aka Telly Ratford from Salute Your Shorts okay yeah that name sounds familiar yeah she was um African American tomboy girl stuff was she on in the 90s she had a cameo in the movie life um at the beginning of life she was the juke waitress the one who helped that other guy cheat in the game of poker that screwed over eddie murphy i've not seen that movie oh really unfortunately yeah it's a great movie but it's but it's a pretty depressing movie too because um they really do end up spending pretty much their whole entire lives in prison for a crime they didn't even commit. Yeah, that's rough. But again, happens to all of us. Yeah, exactly. I just got out. Really? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually calling you from prison. You didn't realize at the beginning of the call, it was like prisoner number one, seven, eight, nine, four. Do you accept? <laughs> yeah, I was about to be like, no judgment. <laughs> These are prison crafted crafts, guys. Yeah, exactly. So expensive. Yeah, well, hey, you gotta make your bail money somehow. <laughs> somehow. Uh, well, that's cool. You've gotten some uh, some names that people have recognized. 
Yeah, and we're... It's going to be hard. How do you approach someone that's, like, you know, actually kind of famous? You shoot them a DM and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Are you interested? Yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah, I shoot them a DM and... I try to get a lot of the ones who were big and like the, who are who are known for the eighties, nineties, and even early two thousands, and I'll tell them about the my nostalgia themed podcasts, and I'll and it also helps that when I mentioned Danny was the one who helped me start it because mo- most, if not all of them, know who Danny is, so. Um, when I mentioned, gotcha. yeah, when I mentioned Danny, they know that it's legit and everything. Gotcha. Yeah, you didn't have to mention Danny for me. I would have did it either way. <laughs> but, but yeah, a lot of them, um, I just reach out to them and, um, I'll ask, I ask them if they'd like to be a guest on. I let them know that I'm a performing artist myself. And that as a one performing artist to another, I would love to have them on. Yeah. And, and yeah. Has um, anyone ever said no when you thought they might say yes? Um, I mean, there's been ones who've either been like swamped or ones who saw my message and didn't respond or, um, one who, um, said that he was really swamped, but at least responded to me was Sean Weiss of the Mighty Ducks, a.k.a. Goldberg. Um, He's actually a stand-up comedian now himself who's nationally touring, and he said that for the next several months, he's really booked with tours and stuff, so that he didn't really have time to do one. But um, he was appreciative of the fact that I reached out to him at least. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's nice when they respond. They filmed that in Minnesota, by the way. Yeah. My sister was an extra in the third movie. But yeah, what's it called? Um, I know in the first one, they had Mickey's Diner, which I know is a very famous diner there. Yep, I've been there before. Still there. But yeah, one who I'm trying to get, who who I might have on an upcoming episode, who also told me she does stand-up comedy now, is Angelique Bates from All That, the one from the first couple seasons, the African-American girl. Remember her? Um... I did watch all that, and I loved all that. Um, I don't know if I remember her specifically. There's only a few I remember. There was, like, a white kid that they always put giant ears on. Oh, yeah, Josh Server. Okay, yeah, but he stands out to me. Obviously, Keenan and Cal. Um, And then there was that girl that did, like, that news update. Yeah, Lori Beth Denberg. Yeah, she's a little bigger. Yeah. I remember basically those four. But no one else. If you weren't Pierre Escargo, I don't remember you. 
Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that was Keenan Thompson. Yep, yep, love Keenan. So is Minnesota where you were born and raised? Unfortunately, yeah. I feel like if I could choose my birthplace, it would have been somewhere in California, just for the weather. But yeah, yeah, California is great, but um. L.A. I would never want to live. L.A. I would go to on business, like, to do shows and stuff. But uh, L.A.'s way too crazy and hectic of a city. And the traffic um is the worst in the country. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't doubt that. I've never been, but I hate crowded areas. Yeah, and f- funny enough, um, Danny was telling me that he's never phased when he's late for like an event or anything because he grew up in LA. So he's used to being late for everything. Cause he's used to sitting in traffic for like an hour and a half. Oh my gosh. That has to be horrible on a daily basis. But yeah. Yeah. And what's it called? Um, the LA's a city where you can't trust anybody because everybody's basically somebody who's got an ulterior motive for talking to you because they think that you're like a potential um, talent agent. So they kiss ass to everyone and anyone thinking that they're going to kiss ass to the person who might give them their big break. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very... So they're, they're more new rap, not 90s rap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, it, and I mean, when it comes to showbiz, i much rather be at, as cold as New York is. I would much prefer New York over LA because New York's got a much wider variety of entertainment, I would say. They, they've got a lot of TV and movies, too, in New York, but they also have a better comedy scene than L.A. has. They have um, a better um, live performing arts scene. Yeah. Even Chicago. Isn't that where a lot of the SNL talent gets scouted out? It's Chicago? Uh, yeah, I actually... Um, I, uh, I had never until last December been to Chicago and I went to there last December and hit up a couple of mics while I was there. And yeah, I was blown away by how good their comedy scene is out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really intelligent crowd in Chicago. Like, um, that's one thing that can be annoying about South Florida crowds when it comes to comedy is certain South Florida crowds are like really dumb. So you can have the greatest joke ever, but the crowd's not going to laugh because they don't get it. <laughs> Hopefully they're not listening to this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. We'll be showing up in your show just like you did to Screech. They'll be there to freak you out. Yeah. <laughs> and listen to the entire podcast on the way here. Yeah. How? That's so many hours. I drove from Washington. 
Yeah, like this one joke I tell sometimes that a lot of the crowd doesn't get. I talk about um about Florida, and I go, you know, one thing that's always puzzled me: why did so many World War II veterans want to live here in Florida? If you were involved in Normandy, would you ever want to look at a beach for the rest of your life? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's one that a lot of people don't get when I tell that one. Yeah. And the demographic that lived in that joke, they're declining as well. Yeah. Thinning out, if you will. But yeah, I'm so sorry that I couldn't get Danny on here today. Um, yeah, I, he, 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 I think he said he's on a cruise ship this week. Well, that's nice. I watched uh, his episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark last night just to brush up, just in case. Yeah, but yeah, he, I think he's still involved in a band. He's, um what's it called still part of the same band he was in in the 90s and they're the ones who he's on a cruise ship with right now he said that um he and his band are like in one of the rooms playing oh nice so he like booked it as an act yeah nice comes with a free cruise <laughs> but yeah what's the name of his band um bad for good So, Coley, do you have anything else to add? Coley, did we lose you? I was starting to wonder if I just couldn't hear him anymore. (laughs) Yeah, the last episode, I remember his phone actually died. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. So yeah, before we conclude another um ep- very special episode of um Vanilla Weiss and the Nostalgic Nerds, um Brian, is there anything you want to let us know about like your upcoming projects? Um, you know, I'm always racking my brain for things I can do, and sometimes I'll take it to Instagram and ask uh, what the fans want to see. Um. And a lot of them are things that I'm trying to think about how to do, but some stuff just isn't feasible, or at least I haven't figured it out yet on how to make it on a small scale. Um, So I don't have anything specific that's coming out, but I am always trying to think of a new product to bring, because I would like to have as much stuff as possible um, as far as props. So that, you know, if your favorite episode is an obscure episode, you can still find something. Like I did uh, temporary tattoos of Igor, who's like this dog from the virtual pet episode, which is almost unanimously agreed on as like one of the worst episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark? So, you know, even if your favorite episode is everyone else's worst favorite, you can still find something. Um, And then all the crowd pleasers. So if I could get something from Dead Man's Float cooking up, uh, I think that would be good, but nothing specific. So I'm always taking ideas. And if you see me on Instagram, shoot me a message, say hi. Uh, I will respond. I'm not like, uh, you know, 
some of the A-list celebrities you've reached out to, I'm sure. <laughs> but, you know, I'd like to think I'm as nice as Tom Hanks. Well, yeah, and I mean, just the fact that you're making the kind of memorabilia that's um, literally keeping the show a lot, that, that's helping keeping all the memories alive and everything, to me, that's just as important. Yeah, and I'm, all, I'm honestly shocked sometimes at how many people do buy it. Because it's like, it's one thing to remember that you watch the show, Are You Free of the Dark, as a kid, but then it's another thing to say, oh, well, there was this specific episode with this hard stone that you could go through the mirror and travel through time. And, like, for someone to say, I want that specific thing from that specific episode from that old show 30 years ago, it's crazy that I even sell anything. Um, but those are people like me because I started making it because I wanted it to have, you know, show my kids and, and help them, you know, spark imagination. Um, and I think it's great that other people want to do that, even if it's just to display it or to reminisce about, you know, the show. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad people buy it, uh, for whatever reason. And I, I hope to keep coming up with new stuff. Uh, for as long as possible. Well, Brian, thank you so much for tuning in with us and for joining us today on another very special episode of Vanilla Weiss and the Nostalgic Nerds. And for those who are tuning in, this has been another episode of Vanilla Weiss and the Nostalgic Nerds. And thank you so much for coming, Brian, and for those of you listening, make sure to keep your eyes and ears peeled for Brian's upcoming merchandise and help support 90s memories. Thank you and good night, y'all.